Hi everyone, Eric here. Quick side note before we get started with this week's show. We recorded the interview with Huawei spokesman Adam Lane before the announcement that Google will accede to a U.S. government request to restrict Huawei's access to the Android operating system and a number of critical apps. I just wanted to let you know up front in case you might be wondering why we didn't ask any questions related to these recent events and how they might impact Huawei's operations in Africa. We hope to have Adam come back at a future date for another show on this. But for now, with that out of the way, here's this week's episode. The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, today we're going to be talking about Huawei in Africa, and this is a very interesting topic to talk about. It's one we've never really delved into specifically, but given the the transformation that's happened over the past 15, 20 years in Africa in the ICT space, Huawei is probably the most important player in this space. So what we're going to do is we're going to really go into all the different issues. But I thought before we get started, it would be interesting to kind of give a little bit of a background on the company, because even though a lot of people know the brand, they know the name, but they don't necessarily know its history and where it came from. And then we'll dive into the Africa and Kenya specific issues as it relates to uh, some of the current affairs and, and some of the headlines about Huawei. Now, Huawei was founded in 1987 by a former Chinese army officer by the name of Ren Zhengfei. Now, back then in 87, uh, he focused the company on building phone switches. But since then, it's expanded to become the world's largest telecommunications equipment and consulting company. Now, all, all together, they've got about 170,000 employees around the world and equipment deployed in 170 different countries and territories. Uh, this is a fact that I like. 45 out of the 50 largest telecom operators in the world use Huawei equipment. Now, according to Huawei, it's a private company that's owned by its employees, but because their ownership structure is quite opaque, even that simple fact now is in dispute between the company and its critics. Its biggest critic, of course, and everybody knows this, is the United States government, who firmly believes that Huawei poses a security threat because of its relationship both with the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese government. As many of you know, the U.S. has doggedly gone around the world to try and discourage both companies and countries from using Huawei equipment, uh, but even amidst this incredible pressure from Washington, I mean, and it is relentless what they've been doing. The company's sales last year surged by on almost 20%, to just over $107 billion. Now, a lot of that business comes from selling network gear to telecom operators like Safaricom and MTN. In fact, about a quarter of all telecom networks worldwide run on Huawei equipment. But that's not where the growth is coming from. It's actually in the consumer business that's really starting to take off. So last year, sales of phones, computers, tablets grew by almost 45%. And Africa is actually one of those markets where they are very, very active. Right now, Huawei is the number four brand in Africa for smartphones. Although far behind techno, it still has a, well, about 7%, a respectable share of the entire African market. 
You know, as we mentioned at the top, it's impossible to overstate the importance of Huawei in Africa's telecommunications over the past 10 to 15 years. Uh, Kobus, recently you and I mentioned that there was an, an article in Foreign Policy magazine that stated 70% of Africa's entire 4G network was built by Huawei. And Huawei's presence across the continent is pervasive. It's building cloud data centers in Egypt and South Africa. It's rolling out 5G in parts. It's building networks, I mean, just from top to bottom. Now, this is both exciting to see the growth of telecommunications, but Cobus, it also raises a lot of concerns. Some of these concerns include that deliberate vulnerabilities, so-called backdoors, would be built into these networks. Um, so these would then facilitate surveillance by outside entities. And the U.S. government has said that this could include surveillance by the Chinese government. Um, you know, African officials tend to counter by referring back to the Edward Snowden revelation, saying that, you know, that lots of people are probably spying on African governments anyway. Um, at a, a second concern, is that it could strengthen the hand of oppressive governments in Africa. Um, so there's been, in 2014, there was a report released by Human Rights Watch um, that said that a mix of Western and Chinese companies, including the Chinese state-owned telecom provider ZTE, uh, facilitated surveillance of dissidents by the Ethiopian government, which as well at that stage was considerably more authoritarian than it is now, or that it seems now. Um at the same time, um, Africa is re really, really needs to get online. There's this real hunger to get online in Africa. And that means that, that Africans have to make really hard choices and, and, you know, think really hard about what the options are. Um, Huawei is one of the biggest players in the in African internet provision, um, and it's active at all of the levels, from, from lying undersea cables to selling mobile phones. Um, and in Africa, that really counts for a lot. So we've heard a lot from the critics. We've heard a lot of commentary. One voice we haven't actually heard very much from is Huawei itself. Now, Chinese companies in general are notorious for not speaking publicly and certainly to the media. And this is really one of the first times in the 10 years, Cobus, you and I have been hosting the show, that we've had a representative from a Chinese company on. So that way, we are just absolutely thrilled to have Adam Lane, a senior public affairs director for Huawei Kenya, join us on the line from Nairobi uh, Adam, a very good morning to you, and thank you very much for joining us. Good morning. Delighted to be on the show. Now, you have been with the company for about four, four and a half years, and you've had the opportunity to work in Shenzhen at the headquarters and also now in Nairobi in, in their Africa division. Uh, you know, I, we, we've kind of brushed over a lot of the controversies and a lot of the benefits. Tell us a little bit about this, the state of the culture within the company right now. I'd like to, I'll get to some specifics later on. But there's this mix of incredible optimism about what Huawei is doing in Africa in terms of really building out, you know, mobile telecommunications, network telecommunications, the big Huawei marine cable that's coming from Asia. That's super exciting. But there's also this assault that's coming from the United States that's sowing doubt or trying to sow doubt uh, to countries and companies across the continent about whether or not Huawei is a legitimate, secure partner. Talk to us a little bit about how the company looks at these two different contradictory messages that are coming in right now. Yeah, we can t certainly get to that in a second. I mean, and it's interesting you mentioned about the culture. Um, Huawei has a very strong culture, and it's 
often too strong for many people, uh, whether Chinese, whether African, whether other Westerners, to, to manage in Huawei. And I think that's actually quite interesting when we look at the current issues that we're facing. Um, so maybe I can reflect a little bit about that, because also it looks about our history and our origins uh, and you know, why we were being in Africa for over 20 years. And our culture is a key part of that. And I think that also links to how we address these issues, especially if we feel like we're being attacked maybe um, by certain organizations or certain individuals. Um, so let me, you know, as you mentioned, Huawei was founded in 1987. Huawei started as a, you know, a group of six people who basically were laid off from their state-owned jobs, looking to find uh, a new job and trying to engage in the private sector, which back in the late 80s in China was very, very new. Um, anyway, so what they decided to do was to import this, this equipment from Hong Kong. They didn't make it themselves. They just imported it and started to sell it. And they looked for opportunities to sell, which is in the middle of rural China. So they would go around very remote parts of rural China trying to sell switches and things to customers in the smaller towns and cities in rural China. Now, I won't go through all the detail, but you know, that was fairly successful. And after around 10 years or so, the late 90s, we took the same approach to going overseas. And we came to Africa in the late 90s. So we've been here more than 20 years now. And the same approach was there's a market that people aren't addressing. Uh, how can we de develop in that? By that point, we had developed our own equipment, products that met that market. And so we did that. And it was very successful because much of rural Africa is very similar to rural China, especially rural China in the late 80s. Um, but this culture's been there from the very beginning, which was it's not easy to work in rural China in the late 80s. It was not easy to work in rural Africa in the late 90s. And even today, it can still be very difficult. You know, we still work in the most remote parts of the entire continent, whether they're mountains, whether they're deserts, um, working with our customers to install equipment, you know, requires very, very long journeys. It requires a lot of difficult working conditions. Uh, of course, we take care of our employees, but this this culture about striving to do what's really, really difficult has been endemic uh, since Huawei's beginning. If you look at some of the things our founders talked about, it's always been about you know, building networks at the top of Everest or the, uh, the Arctic Circle and this kind of thing. So when it and the second key thing in our culture has been this feeling of uh, never resting on your laurels. You know, since we've been uh, founded, many, many Chinese companies started doing the same thing as us, importing equipment, have gone bankrupt. We uh, obviously saw what happened with ZTE in the last couple of years uh, with some of the issues they faced in the US and how that has affected them substantially. Uh, but it's not, it's not just Chinese companies. You know, there's been tremendous change in the industry in the past. There's Nortel Networks in Canada that had issues. There, uh, there was Alco there's Alcatel Lucent, which originally was Alcatel and then Lucent, the U.S. company, and then part of Nokia. And so, you know, our competitors like Nokia and Ericsson, they've ha faced real financial headwinds in the last few years. So we've always had this culture of a fear of basically being destroyed. Uh, not necessarily by somebody attacking us, but just because of business um, and a very, very difficult industry. You know, most of our customers, um, not so much in Africa, but in Europe, have not been making much profit um, for the last several years. So th this culture is very, very strong and it's interesting. And I think when people look at Huawei and why we've been successful, yes, pricing is certainly a key part of it. Quality innovation is a key part of it. But it's, it's the issue of culture and customer service and paying attention to our customers and working despite this. So I think what it means in terms of the current attacks maybe on our company and our people is actually, I think, it's really reinforced how important our culture is and how we have to strive to succeed. And if we can overcome the issues, we'll be much stronger from it. 
Um, you know, we, and we'll talk, I think, openly on this call about some of these issues and we'll give our opinion on them. You know, our, our CEOs, um, we have a few of them in our interesting governance structure, have said openly, you know, we are going to dramatically improve the quality of our cybersecurity. Um, not that we think we're particularly weak, but there's a huge issue in technology globally across all companies, uh, and we all have to improve it. And if we invest a huge amount of money and time now, we will be even stronger and much more successful in the future because of it. Um, so they're looking at it as, you know, this is a great challenge, but a huge opportunity. And if we can come out of this, the other side will be even stronger for it. So that's really, I think, the culture in the company. You know, it's difficult, you know, long hours and uh, being attacked uh, and criticized heavily. But if we can succeed, then we'll be much stronger after it. So that's, I think, from the culture perspective. Can you give us an outline of, of the extent of Huawei's business in Africa? Like, what, what is a, was a, a brief rundown of all of the different sectors in ICT that Huawei is, is playing a, a major role in on the continent? Sure. I think you covered some of it quite well in the, the extensive introduction that Eric gave. Um, and as I mentioned, we started in Africa in the late 90s, originally purely in the telecommunication industry. Um, uh, and, you know, but that telecommunication industry is not just mobile networks. There's the backhaul that gets the internet or the phone calls to the towers themselves. There's also underground fiber cables. There's a lot of software around this as well, billing systems, um, you know, all kinds of other things. There's also a huge issue around power. You know, actually, Huawei's got, a, a, I think, a billion dollar business actually in power, uh, mostly around batteries, because you have batteries providing backup power uh, in mobile towers, for example, uh, but also solar power. Uh, we have also a solar power division using some of the electronics that control solar powers. And this kind of started around this issue of providing power in remote areas of China and Africa, these mobile towers. And now it's become obviously an, a whole nother business in itself, which is very interesting. The solar power itself has become, you know, a, an industry. Um, the, the, the interesting aspect of this telecommunication business is it's a very long-term business. You know, it, it's business to business, B2B. That means you work with the Safaricoms, the Telcoms, the MTNs, the Airtels for decades, ideally, uh, and you want to. So that means you set up proper businesses, proper offices, legal entities, you hire all the back office staff, you set up trading centers to train your staff and your customers, uh, and you have to become very, very local to have to work with these companies long, long term. They're not going to work with you if you're going to sell equipment and then you're not going to maintain it two months later, or you're not going to upgrade it two years later. Um, and of course, as a business, we want to be there to provide the upgrades and the innovations and so on. So that's maybe why people don't understand how big we are in terms of our long-term presence. I mean, in Kenya, for example, we've got around 400 direct employees, but around 2,500 extra employees that we employ through our subcontractors. And, you know, so when we install these telecommunications networks, we're not doing all the work ourselves. And we intentionally try to work with local companies as much as possible. So we may sell them the equipment and we train them to use the equipment. And then they themselves, uh, you know, not necessarily the customer, but our subcontractors will take that equipment out to the countryside. They'll be installing it on the towers. They'll build towers. We don't build metal towers or structures ourselves necessarily. Um, and so that creates a huge number of jobs and a huge amount of skills and training. And those companies now, those subcontractors have become quite big companies themselves. Uh, and that's quite interesting from the telecommunication network side. Uh, the second piece of our business is what we call the enterprise business, uh, which includes a lot of work we do with governments, the government backbone networks. Um, these are very important backbone networks that connect both government offices and are then used 
for connecting some of the mobile towers and, and other fiber internet. Uh, but we also do, as you mentioned, data centers for government uh, and what we call smart solutions. You know, smart transportation, um, smart health, smart education, some really interesting aspects of both IT and the telecommunications aspect. Um, we do have Huawei Marine, it's a joint venture uh, with a UK company that's been going for a while, that's quite successful, that's doing the peace cable. I think this is the one that uh, Kobus mentioned, or Eric mentioned, uh, from Pakistan to e the eastern coast of Africa. There's many other cables, I think there's one from Western Africa to South South and Latin America and others as well that Huawei Marine does. Um, and then the third key business you mentioned is the consumer business. And the consumer business started about eight, nine years ago when the telecommunication companies you know, were rolling out 3G networks. Uh, but there was nobody that had a phone that could use 3G, that could use broadband internet. So we helped them produce lower cost smartphones, uh, originally you know, OEM, so not branded by Huawei, and then increasingly branded by Huawei ourselves. Uh, certainly those people listening in, in East Africa will know the IDEOS smartphone around 2011, 2012. I think it's got this reputation, the first ever kind of low-cost $100 Android smartphone that came out, and everyone went crazy for them at the time. I mean, obviously those that could afford them. Um, and now, of course, our, our market share is probably not as high as it once was as we focus on the specific segments of the market. And we still have affordable options, your phones from, say, $60, $70, $80, um, and then going all the way up to you know, our flagship smartphones, some of which are the what we think the best in the world, the best cameras, the best batteries, the best artificial intelligence that you know, may cost $900 or so. Um, we're not intentionally in the market for very, very low-cost smartphones. We don't believe at the current uh, production there's a way of making good quality products for $20 or $30 in smartphones. Uh, we're happy for other companies to do that if they think they can. And actually, in some cases, we've introduced our customers to our competitors that can produce those smart smartphones. Because we also want, of course, people in rural areas that can't afford smartphones to be able to get them. But as a brand and as a product, we don't want to produce low quality products because that would obviously affect our brand. Um, and obviously can also cause you know, more e-waste issues and so on. Um, but, but we do have some interesting partnerships, and I'll wrap up on this, where we work, for example, in Kenya with MCOPA that provides solar power on installment. So as long as, as well as getting solar power systems that can charge your light bulb in your home, you can also then buy a smartphone on installment and then pay per day or per week. So you can make those smartphones more affordable to those that don't have a large amount of money to pay up front. So the breadth of what you're doing is is really quite impressive. It's it's remarkable, in fact. And again, we've talked about this on the show previously, that you cannot talk about the ICT telecommunications revolution in Africa without talking about the twin combination of Huawei equipment backed by China Exim Bank loans. I mean, that has been instrumental in bringing millions and millions and millions of people online. And that is, I think, by any definition, a net positive. And there's no way, in my opinion, people can argue against that. However, there is another side of this. And we've, you know, Cobus touched on this in the beginning of the show, which is that with the good comes the bad. And I'd like to get your take on this about how do you respond as a company when people raise these concerns? So Sheridan Prasso, who is a investigative reporter for Bloomberg, uh, wrote an article earlier this year talking about in Mauritius off uh, in Eastern Africa, uh, Huawei's installing 4,000 cameras and opposition politicians uh, are really worried about an increase in surveillance and monitoring. And Huawei, because of its experience in China, does have an expertise in surveillance technology and surveillance ICT. This has been a concern in Ethiopia, now in Mauritius and other places like that. So when stakeholders, clients, governments, who you name it, come to you and say, 
you know, this is a legitimate concern. Uh, it's not only Huawei that's doing it. Surveillance capitalism is an issue in the United States uh, by Google, Facebook, and others. Uh, but in this particular case, we're talking about Huawei with a disproportionate market share and an expertise in this technology that does concern a lot of civil rights people about the direction that many African countries and governments are going using the, the equipment that your company makes. Talk to us a little bit about the discussion that you have with those kinds of stakeholders on these issues. Sure, and also just to answer the question you mentioned about the Exim Bank loans. We don't get loans ourselves directly from anyone, actually. Uh, but the loans are for no. But the governments get the loans that they then apply to your yes, equipment. Yes, yes. Our right? customers get loans. Uh, yeah, yes. they can get they can get them Correct. from Chinese banks, but that is local the, banks, international banks. The chocolate and the peanut butter go together to be able to make this happen. But it, yeah, the government gets the loan, and then they then turn around and use it for to buy equipment from you. Yeah, yeah, and not just governments. Also, some of our companies, other telecommunication companies, get loans too, often from international banks. We do projects for the World Bank and others as well. Um, so yes, now in terms of the. Uh, privacy and security issues. Maybe the first thing to clarify, you know, as I mentioned what we did, I, there's certain things that, that I didn't say because we don't do them. So Huawei is not you know, a social media company. We don't, we're not really an internet company. We don't sell advertising. We don't sell data. That's not our business model. We sell pipes, boxes, you know, a, a piece, a pieces of equipment that other people use. And then we occasionally will sell the software and the maintenance to keep that equipment running. But we never actually control that equipment after we've sold it to somebody, whether it's a government or whether it's a telecommunication company. Uh, the only case will be occasionally in the maintenance of that equipment itself uh, with managed service products. But we're not really controlling it. And that's very important. And I think people don't understand that. You know, even the underwater cables, you know, we're not running the internet through those cables. You build a cable for a company that manages the cable, but then lease that space to other people. Uh, so that's important. We don't have any direct access to any of this equipment or any of the information flowing on the equipment. Yeah, but, but if I could just ask you a question, I may not, I sell guns. I sell you a gun. I'm not shooting somebody, but if you turn around and shoot somebody, well, that's not good. So if you're selling the the the, the ability to do the surveillance, then they turn around and use the surveillance. Is that not some type of responsibility? Yeah, it's a very difficult topic. And I think our competitors, uh, including American companies, face the same kind of questions. Uh, I mean, the, the security camera system is an interesting example. Uh, I think it hasn't been brought up as much in some of these issues recently, but it's very important. I mean, the one we've done in Kenya has been very successful. And even with the terrorism attack that happened a few months ago, uh, the system was hugely important. Um, in helping the government respond to those issues very, very quickly, which prevented hundreds of, uh, of additional deaths. And I don't know how the system in Mauritius and how it's being used, but you're right. These systems can have potential, huge potential for good. And I agree, there is a potential that it can be misused by the people using them in terms of the government or the police agencies. Um, and that's, I think, up to those agencies and how their democratic and legal systems try to manage the use. But I, don't, I think we also have to recognize that surveillance systems or security systems are hugely useful and hugely widespread. You know, even in London, where I'm from, you know, the, I think originally we were the most surveyed city in the world. Maybe we've been overtaken now by others. Um, and people accept it and acknowledge it. Now, it's a different legal context uh, compared to Africa, and I understand that. Um, but I also think people have to understand in Africa the situation around crime and safety. Uh, and if people, I mean, and you've both lived here, and obviously Cobus has been, uh, and seen what it's like in South Africa and other parts of the continent, you know, safety is seen as the basic uh, primeval need, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And without good safety, how can you have economic development or social development? So there has to be both sides of the coin looked at. 
say if it's really improving safety and we think it is and we have lots of examples and case studies then it's, it's bringing and enabling huge economic opportunities as well and that's has to be addressed but yes i recognize there are potential risks of abuse of the systems as well within those legal frameworks of those governments and those countries we recently interviewed a researcher uh, called Eugenio Galeardone, who's, who's done a lot of work on on Chinese ICT provision in Africa, um, and he argued that um, you know he was looking at this idea about whether whether certain kind of Chinese models are being exported to Africa, and he, and he, he made the point that um, in, in, essentially African governments get what they want. You know, kind of if there's an African government who wants uh, who wants to set up a data architecture that facilitates, you know, kind of free market, um, civil society friendly kind of environments, then that is what Chinese entities would provide for them. And if there is a government who wants, you know, a, a more centrally controlled, more surveillance heavy, you know, kind of state control system, then that is that can simply be provided too. Um, does Huawei have some kind of red line where they, you know, kind of where they're like, oh, this looks like it could very potentially be used, you know, kind of uh, for oppressive um, reasons or, you know, to use be, this technology can be used to oppress people. Um, we're not going to, there, there's certain there's certain level beyond which we won't provide a system that, that is being asked for by a client. I think it's very difficult to uh, draw a line. Uh, you know, if you're trying to identify a criminal and then track down a criminal or you identify someone who isn't a criminal, but, you know, somebody wants to track them down anyway, you know, how would you mitigate that? You know, I think the only real process is in terms of the judicial systems in certain governments or certain systems that can help uh, in terms of addressing those who are, um, you know, brought to court um, for their crime and evidence is provided from the surveillance systems. For some of those aspects, you can really address those issues. Um, I think, you know, the issue of... Um, these topics are, is really changing. You know, if we look even in the West, you know, there's even increasingly uh, censorship in the West of, you know, pornography online. Um, there's issues around terrorism related content and stuff too. So there's no, you know, it's a very difficult line to draw about what content one allows when you look at the internet and you don't look at the internet. The same, I think, from the, the surveillance aspect as well. Uh, I will also emphasize that we are, we're at, our headquarters are in China, as you mentioned, we're a global company, but we're not owned by the Chinese. So I know we're seen as part of China, though obviously we're not. Um, you know, we'd only we'd certainly train our customers, like the police, to how to use the equipment. Um, we wouldn't teach them or discuss anything around, you know, how you would use it in the concept or perception of, you know, how you manage your police service and surveillance generally and legal systems and so on. So uh, that may have other conversations with other governments, you know, from the West or from the East. Uh, but I don't know how they would discuss those kind of topics of how they use equipment in a broader framework, I think, as your previous speaker referred to. Yeah, I think, you know, this question of the ownership is very interesting. And Christopher Balding, who's a scholar at uh, Fulbright University in Vietnam, together with uh, one of his colleagues, wrote a paper questioning whether or not it's a really an employee-owned company. I don't actually want to get into that because that's really not relevant for our African discussion. What's relevant for us a little bit is that relationship with the government. And so while it is technically a private company and not a state-owned company, there's no dispute on that, uh, the, there is a Communist Party cell within the company, as there are in all major companies in China. And then there's also this line that, you know, Xi Jinping, the president, has kind of said that major com all companies should be in service of the state and the Communist Party. And that's where it gets very confusing for outsiders 
about what, where do Huawei's allegiances lie? And this is the core of the U.S. argument that says when push comes to shove, Huawei will side with the Chinese government and not necessarily with its customers. Now, that's pure speculation. We don't know because we haven't reached push come to shove yet. So in that fair defense. However, though, I think a lot of people do see this kind of very, very opaque political structure in China. Where does Huawei fit in with that? You also have a company that is highly secretive for many, many years, has not really had a lot of you know outside exposure, which is why we're so happy that you are here today to talk to us about this. But it just kind of raises some of those issues. Now, one issue that I did want to bring up, uh, and, and I'll let you respond to that, anything you want, but is about, and, and this is the last of the controversial issues, we're going to change the subject after this, but about the African Union, because this came up uh, in a Le Monde report last year that, uh, and again, let me just kind of bring everybody up to speed on this. Last year, the French newspaper Le Monde used an anonymous source that, and there was only one source. It was a single source, anonymous source story. So by most editorial standards, that is a pretty weak standard. That is not a standard that usually the New York Times or other newspapers would go on. That being said, they went on the story that said that the Chinese government allegedly had installed listening devices and that every morning at about two or three in the morning, a massive amount of data would be leaving uh, the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa and going back to China. Uh, Huawei did do some of the equipment installation on that. Uh, Huawei has denied that it is spying or put back doors on its equipment. I would like to get your take on this. And I know Huawei has issued a statement recently on it. And I, so I have two questions for you on this. Why did Huawei in April 2019 issue a new statement on this, since there really hasn't been anything new on the story since, as far as I can see? And then again, talk to us a little bit about you, you know, Huawei's interpretation of this and what's your what's the, yeah, so, the company's point uh, of view you're right. the company's position. Uh, we we have tried to really increase our transparency dramatically in the last year or so. Uh, I don't think we were necessarily secretive before that. I mean, as a private company, we still issued a, an audited annual report by one of the big four auditing companies, and that's been public for several, I think, for a long time. I don't know how long, at least 10, 15 years. Um, and there's been many people who have had access to us, but certainly there was an impression maybe um, that we weren't engaging as much as maybe we started in the last year or two. Uh, we have produce you know, a lot more content on our website where you can find a lot more of these statements. And I think the process of providing another statement on the AU issue was in order to be much more clear that people can find the information if they're looking for it. Just like the ownership question, a huge amount of information on our website. You know, our, One of our board members did a press conference just last week. So there's a lot of information about that. People can, can read about it in detail. Um, uh, in terms of your first comment, I think about the Communist Party. Yes, as you said, every every foreign, every local company with a certain number of employees has to have a Communist Party um, organization. Uh, I don't know whether the word cell is quite an interesting word, I think. Um, but just to be fair, a backdoor by definition means that you're controlling it externally and remotely. And that's the accusation is that there are Huawei's been putting backdoors. Again, it hasn't, to be fair, it hasn't been substantiated by a third party independent source. As far as I know, this there's only one anonymous source from Le Monde, but again, it feeds into this really powerful narrative that the United States is putting out and that a lot of people feel and suspect about Huawei, which, of course, people like me and Cobus have no way of verifying whether it's true or not, but we just kind of wanted to put that caveat on it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, maybe I can quickly add two points down. I think you mentioned about the, the legal aspect, you know, as a 
we have to obey local laws wherever we operate. So Huawei in Kenya obeys Huawei or obeys Kenyan legal framework. So whatever is law in Kenya is what we would obey. And same with other countries, you know, the GDPR, the data protection regulation in Europe, for example, is obeyed there and, and so on. So whether in China specifically, the Chinese government could ask us to do certain things, sure, we have to obey Chinese law in China. In Kenya or in Mauritius or in Botswana, we'd obey whatever law is based there as well. Um, in terms of this issue of the back doors, you know, ultimately, there's a lot of equipment that we sell all around the world. Uh, no matter what you are testing and whatever we would say, uh, I presume that nobody's still going to trust us, you know. Um, I would say, and what I would say to people in Kenya and other parts of Africa is that we've been working here for 20 years. None of our customers have had any problems so far. And if they did, they ha we have competition. They'd immediately switch to our competition. So first is that threat that if we have a problem, they will switch and we'd lose our business. And actually, certainly in the current environment, if one company had a major issue, we'd potentially lose many, many customers, not even that one company itself. And since you know, a lot of our company, at least until recently, was but dependent on basically a couple of hundred global telecommunication companies, you start losing some of those, you have no business anymore. So you have to kind of trust those customers whose own reputations uh, are based on the success of our equipment, are willing to work with us because they are testing our equipment and they trust us. So even though, you know, the average person on the street can't go and test our equipment uh, and we wouldn't want you to, you have to trust that our customers are testing it and they're confident and they're engaging with us. So as Eric mentioned at the top, you know, as this this quite um, kind of hostile in, environment for Huawei is is developing in the U.S., the the company's business has actually grown quite significantly. Um, how? So so okay. So 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 two related questions. Like um, in the first place, um, do you foresee that that um, the the company will redeploy and 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 kind of that that the patterns of its global business is going to change because of the pressure that's that's coming from from the US government um you know whether it that means more engagement with, with places like Africa or you know however um in the second place there's been you know in relation to to this issue there's been all of this discussion about the bifurcated internet the idea that they that we're heading towards Different different internets. Some one one being Chinese dominated. You know, in which which is where Huawei is frequently mentioned as a key player by by U.S. regulators, and one that will be the the kind of so called you know the, the American dominated internet where where big players like Google, for example, dominate. How does the bifurcated internet story look from within Huawei? Um. I mean, we we don't see anything about the bifurcated or bifurcated internet. Um, I mean, from an equipment provider perspective, which we provide, it's it's irrelevant, you know, because we don't control the internet itself. It's just the information that's information flowing over the equipment that we provide. And in every single country where we work, almost without fail, almost all our telecommunication company customers intentionally have at least two at least two suppliers. And it has been for a very long time, us and Nokia, us and Ericsson, Nokia and Ericsson, us and ZT, ZT and Nokia, you know, there's, or Samsung. There's many different companies in this space. And they intentionally uh, have at least two of those providers. So there'll never be, I think, even just us and ZT. There'll normally be a, a combination and a mixture, even in one company's network. Uh, so that, from a pure equipment side, I don't think it really involves or affects us. Now, how the internet itself is used, I guess, is more down to the governments. You know, if governments want to censor content or something, that's up to them. 
Um, and we've seen, I think, interesting um, trends in, in different directions, even amongst Western governments now increasingly recognizing there needs to be a bit more censorship or control or monitoring, I don't know what the right word is, um, of certain content, say whether it's pornographic or terrorism related or whatever it happens to be. Um, so that, that's the second question. What was your first question again, Robert? Um Whether patterns of business are going to change because of pressure uh, coming from the US. We hope not, you know. Um, we ourselves are very open to dialogue and discussion with every government, uh, especially the US government. Um, you know, they may not have to buy from us. That's fine. If they don't want to, uh, or they want their own companies to buy from us, that's, it's up to them. Um, I think they recognize no matter the internet and the infrastructure itself is global and business is global and government is global and citizenship is, is global in a sense. So certainly our equipment is already in place in 180 countries or so. If they want to remove all of that, you know, they have to pay someone and find someone who's willing to do it and able to do it and how many years it would take. Uh, that's probably unlikely. Um, otherwise, of course, there's existing equipment that's still going to be used, especially in Africa. You know, people here are still using 2G networks a lot. You know, in some countries in Europe, they've turned off 2G networks, which are voice-only networks. Um, uh, but in Africa, they're still actually dominant. Uh, the voice networks are even used more than the, the internet networks. Um, and of course, there'll be more networks we'll build in the future all around the world. So I, I don't, we're, we don't see our business will change necessarily, but uh, you know, we'll see where the customers want to work with us. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa Channel Reporting Project at Witt University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Witt's China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. It's interesting because this week, uh, in advance, in preparation of our discussion, I, I went on to Twitter and direct message about 20 to 25 people saying, I'm going to be speaking with, uh, with Adam from Huawei. What are some of the issues and questions that I should ask? And to AT, I mean, without exception, the Europeans and the Americans put all of the issues that we talked about in the first half of the program about civil rights, surveillance, human rights, all of these things. They said that's the most paramount issue. Everybody from Africa, and I, I split it about half, uh, didn't talk about that at all. The one thing that came out loud and clear was skills transfer and technology transfer. And, and I just thought that was a really interesting response because I think people are looking at Huawei through vastly different lenses depending on where you are. And, uh, and so I just that, – that, that was a little interesting observation. So let me, uh, let me go to this question of skills and technology transfer. There is a lot of frustration in Africa that Chinese companies who have perfected the joint venture model, which required foreign companies coming into China to find JV partners, and as part of that partnership, uh, had to do skills and technology transfer, forcibly, by law. And yet when Chinese companies oftentimes go overseas, they bring their own technicians, they bring their own engineers, they install whatever it is they're building, and then either they sell the contract to service it, or they just pack up and leave. And there hasn't traditionally been a lot in the way of skills and technology transfer. And it's been a very, very big frustration on the part of African stakeholders that this is the way it is. So I'd like to kind of talk about what is Huawei doing, again, in response to the very kind uh, group of people that I 
uh, reached out to who are predominantly African who kind of came back and said, what is Huawei doing in the space of, of skills and technology transfer? Let's start with skills and then go to tech transfer. Yeah, and it's hugely important. I mean, we've had a, a global sustainability report now for at least 10 years. Um, and there's a lot of information people can look and see more information about this. And in Kenya, actually, last year, we launched our first Kenya sustainability report which covers everything from environmental issues to social issues and to governance issues and ethics issues and so on. Um, and we recognize the importance of skills as probably the most important, uh, maybe second most important aspect of our business. I think the first is, you know, the benefit of being connected, you know, from trade and commerce and, connect and everything else. I think secondly is the skills piece. Um, and we've got a very, well, a fairly comprehensive uh, approach to this. And it starts, uh, I think, you know, initially from the advanced skills you know when we came here 20 odd years ago we set up training centers there's several across the continent um where we train our staff where we train our customers where we train our suppliers um and as i mentioned our suppliers are very important to us uh, as of course are our customers and our staff and many of our staff of course have moved on to to work for our customers or to work for governments or to work for our competitors or have set up their own companies um, and been very right too so there's that's a very interesting aspect you know of the skills transfer too and um, if we go back a level from the very advanced you know training we have what we call the ict academies uh, and now i think uh, there's um uh, more than 100 across africa i can check the exact number in a minute where we're working with universities to train their professors and train students on advanced communication systems and equipment and they can then train their their uh, students and we don't charge a fee or almost zero fee and, you know, the, the universities normally charge a small fee that they can use to cover their cost of training their students. But this is very important because the quality of universities in Africa, to be honest, is not that high. Um, and there's a huge need to partner more closely with the private sector to improve content, curriculum, scholarships and so on for, to improve that advanced skills as well. Uh, the next level down maybe is around internships and training programs. So we do especially for students uh, as well. And we have a global program called Seeds for the Future. Uh, I think most of the African countries now are part of it, where every country sends students to China for training. But beyond, and that's per year, by the way, but even beyond that, those 10 students is just the tip of the iceberg. In almost every country, we've got much broader programs. And those 10 are selected out of, say, 50 or 100 or 200 um, per year from the, the more local programs. So in Kenya, for example, we have about 35 students getting internships per year, and then 10 best of those get to go to China for additional training. But that's just the, the Seeds for the Future program. You know, we also have a graduate training program where we take 25 or so graduates per year in Kenya. Uh, we also work with government internship programs in Kenya. It's called the Presidential Digital Talent Program. Uh, we train 400 students a year for that as well. So there's a very, very broad effort that we take. And I think the other thing I'll lastly mention, I don't want to talk too much about this, is the issue of um, like school programs too. So we also sponsor, you know, programs in primary schools and secondary schools, um, science programs, especially for girls. You know, the, the gender issue in tech space is a huge challenge that we're trying to also address. Uh, and also, you know, people that don't go to university, you know, more vocational related kind of courses. And maybe they won't ever work at Huawei because it's a bit advanced, but they obviously still need IT skills to join the IT industry and drive the IT economy. Um, and we're even looking at basic digital skills now. You know, I think only about half uh, of people in Kenya, actually, Kenya is quite advanced by other African country standards, are actually using uh, smartphones. 
So many people are not, and one of the reasons uh, is affordability and others, but another reason, of course, is the skills to use those smartphones and use the content as well. So also looking at those basic issues too. I think many of your listeners in Africa will understand they go to the village and people are still using these dumb phones uh, or future phones as well. So we have to recognize that there's still a long way to go too, that people maybe in Europe or US don't recognize. So there's, you know, in some parts of Africa, I think only 30% of people are using smartphones. You know, there's still a huge way to go and a huge opportunity for us to Im increase impact, not just physical infrastructure, but the skills to use that as well. Um, now, you also mentioned technology transfer. Um, I think that's a slightly trickier uh, concept. It's also very, very broad. We do have what we call open labs. Uh, there's one in Johannesburg. Uh, I think there's one in North Africa. And then we're looking at setting up others across Africa as well, where we try to do kind of uh, not really the, the, the R of R&D, but certainly the D of the R&D, the development part of the research and development, together with local partners as much as possible. Um, and we're also looking at doing more with, you know, the local ecosystem and innovation uh, to support that as well. You know, there's a whole other question around local manufacturing. Um, you know, that's another aspect, I suppose, of tech transfer, um, which we could talk about separately because itself is a very complicated issue. I know you've talked a lot about, uh, you know, manufacturing in, in Africa and previous um, shows. Um, but yeah, you know, I think tech transfer itself is, is a challenge here. Like I mentioned, you need high quality local universities, uh, incentives from governments, uh, ecosystem that supports that. Uh, and that's still, I think, emerging in this continent. You know, as Eric mentioned, there's there's a, a long-running uh, controversy, not only relating to Huawei, but relating to all Chinese companies' um, presence in Africa, that they tend to, the, the allegation is that they tend to bring in lots and lots of Chinese workers. Um, in, you know, um, and you, you've mentioned all of all of the training that that is being done um, of African workers and the fact that you work with a lot of, a lot of um, you know, kind of subcontractors and so on. Uh, you know, so, so in that way, you're very kind of integrated into the local economy. Um, but if you look at your core stuff, your Huawei working for, officially working for Huawei stuff um, in Africa, what roughly what is the proportion of African versus Chinese um, staff uh, in, you know, in your African operations? So I, I suppose it depends by country and by project. Because um, Huawei's staffing approach is often very global. You know, if you have a project, you need certain people for a few months, uh, you may hire locally for a few months, or you may bring somebody in from another country or whether Chinese or, or European or something as well for a few months, because obviously it's, if a project starts next week and you need somebody next week, it's going to take a while to recruit and train somebody. So you may bring somebody in from another country. Um, so it does vary. Uh, it's probably a bit higher than we wish, and we are trying to reduce as much as possible the proportion of uh, foreigners working. I mean, I'm a foreigner working in Kenya too. Um, you know, we, we are more expensive, I suppose, th than local staff. Uh, but I think where people don't really understand Huawei is that it's a very high-tech company you know like you talk about 4g and you talk about 5g and you talk about all these smart solutions um so it's not that like we're not people are, we don't have chinese people coming in and you know installing equipment on the top of towers um we have people that are very much in the r&d space or solution engineers or working on mobile money software together with our local engineers and so on so that's i think uh, an important aspect of our of our work to mention. And I suppose the, the other key point is if you looked at the total employees, say if we said about 2,500 employees in Kenya, uh, although most are employed through subcontractors, the proportion is very low, maybe 10% could be 
could be Chinese. Um, if you said just the ones directly sitting in Huawei's office, uh, it could be higher than that, 30, 40% or so, maybe a bit more, it depends on the time. Um, but that's because our business models intentionally, as you said, to use local companies as much as possible rather than you know, hiring thousands of people working directly in Huawei. So that also affects the numbers. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah, it's it's. Um, and have have you? Um, has it been a, an issue of you know in in the 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 way that the uh, company is communicated to customers and the way that that it you know that it it promotes itself? Has there does Huawei try to present itself? You know, or like, how does it work with its Chinese image versus its African presence? Like, you know, is is there is there uh, an attempt to try and present Huawei as you know as as being particularly kind of integrated into Africa? That 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 is that has been my impression um, in South Africa. Just just looking at you know in passing at, at promotional material. Certainly, we're trying. Yes, uh, it's difficult when you have a name that is pronounced fifteen different ways by different <laughs> people in in different countries. You know, in, you get Huawei, 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 Huawei. You know, um, which makes it quite amusing. Um, but you know, honestly, actually, half the I speak to taxi drivers sometimes, and half of them think we could be Japanese or Korean. Um, some of them don't even know that we're Chinese necessarily. You know, they, whether we look similar or Chinese people look similar to Koreans or Japanese or the name itself is a bit confusing. Um, but yeah, we do our best to localize as much as we can and give that impression too. But as you also know, Chinese companies are not that into promotion, uh, including self-promotion. So even when there's a lot of community programs happening, a lot of skills programs happening, we maybe don't shout about it as much as we could do or maybe should do, which we're trying to address. But, you know, I don't think it's good if we spent half of our budget on PR and only half on the philanthropic programs. It'd be better to spend, you know, 90% on the philanthropic programs, only 10% on the PR side um, if you had a limited budget. So it's, it's getting that balance right. So just for the record, the way you pronounce it is Huawei, you know, two characters, Hua and Wei. There we go. Uh, Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Adam Lane is a senior public affairs director for Huawei Kenya. Uh, this was, you know, an absolutely fascinating discussion again at a very, very important time. Uh, if people want to follow what Huawei Kenya public affairs, uh, are you guys on Twitter? Are you on Facebook? I mean, obviously we can go to the website, but is there any other way that people, if they want to engage Huawei Kenya can stay in touch with what you guys are doing? Yeah, yeah, we have a lot of Twitter feeds. Um, we have Huawei Kenya, we have Huawei Southern Africa, which is kind of like a sub-Saharan Africa. We have Huawei Global. We have similar for Facebook. Uh, I think you can find the various feeds online and we can put them in the show notes. Uh, we have uh, also a lot on LinkedIn um, as well, especially globally, if people like to use LinkedIn, I think you're also active in there. Um, and, you know, look out for opportunities to work for us, to do internships for us, because uh, these are things also advertised there too. Uh, I will also just mention there's probably separate Twitter and social media feeds for Huawei as a corporate versus Huawei that's selling smartphones. So um, if you find the smartphone uh, channel, you may also want to look for the channel that is more like the corporate channel as well, if that makes sense. So of course, you're welcome to buy our smartphones too. Of course, of course. <laughs> well, the, always selling. There we go. Always selling. Well, listen, Adam, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you very much, Eric and Kobus. Kobus, throughout the entire discussion today, there was one thing that I was thinking about. And it, was an, it was a column that you wrote in China File, and they had a conversation about Huawei uh, a couple months ago, and I really recommend everybody to go look at that China File conversation. Just go to chinafilefile.com, and you'll see uh, they had a conversation where, and they do these things where four or five people kind of write on one topic. 
And you made the point in that article that basically Africa values security and surveillance. So the issues that the United States are raising are being heard in African capitals. It's not that people are disregarding them. But they're also looking at the cold, hard reality that the United States is not bringing an alternative solution on the tech front. So they're not saying don't buy Huawei, buy Cisco, Alcatel, Ericsson, or whatever. They're just saying don't buy Huawei. And it's what I was thinking about through our discussion was how African governments and policymakers are really left with no choice in many respects. While at the end of the day, they may be nervous about the back doors that Huawei may or may not be inserting into its technology, according to the American allegations. But they also recognize that without Huawei and those Exim Bank loans that are coming to them to buy the Chinese equipment, they simply wouldn't have a 4G, much less a 5G network, or they wouldn't be able to get uh, you know, the surveillance systems for the police and for security. And again, as he pointed out, Adam made a very good point. Security in places like South Africa and Kenya is at a level that most people in the West do not understand. I am not saying that to justify the horrific surveillance allegations that are being put forth, but I am saying that there are different concerns on the part of African stakeholders as there are from U.S. and European ones. And I think a lot of African policymakers, ICT leaders have kind of looked at the Americans, shrugged and said, okay, whatever. And there's a lot of clear evidence to suggest that that's the case. Huawei sales last year went up by 19.5%, and they don't sell anything into the U.S., basically. They're at over $107 billion annually. There is no indication that the United States is successful at all in its campaign to discourage or dissuade other than the five eyes countries, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, and Britain, of not using Huawei. And even Britain is on the fence on this. So, you know, I, you're... Your point of view on this, I thought, was very, very salient, and I had that going through my mind throughout the entire discussion. It's. I think the African leaders are are fa- they're facing another set of, of of issues, which is that you know the African population is super, super young. You know, and and we we've discussed this several times before, and especially with Lauren Johnston in the past about you know Chinese versus African demographics. But there are African countries where the median age of the entire country's population is fifteen. Um, it's like imagine you know kind of being being 18, really, really wanting a phone, really wanting, you know, to get online, because I mean, if there's one thing that 18 year olds want is to be online. Um, and just not having it, just not having the networks, not having access to the handsets, just simply the internet is just not there. Um, I think that is almost impossible to imagine for people in in the global north. Um, and that is the, the situation that African leaders are facing, you know, kind of these very large populations of, of underskilled, extremely young people um, who are, you know, they, they carry the potential of the, of the continent in their hands. They're incredibly talented. They're incredibly promising. But if they don't get the opportunities to actually, you know, to actually advance, then they become quite a headache. You know, kind of, it's, it, it can be quite a, a difficult thing to deal with to have an extremely young, extremely energetic population who feels that they have nothing to do and, uh, you know, kind of know that, that all of their opportunities are being blocked. So in that sense, they, 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 they're facing a kind of a, a, a potential, you know, really very, you know, kind of inspiring and, 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 
the kind of globally impactful kind of young generation of young people kind of living their dreams, or they're facing the the, the opposite of that, which is all of those young people being angry that they can't live their dreams. You know, so so that that is that is an, an, a, a, you know really like a very real issue that these African governments are facing. It's a legitimate concern. You're, you're absolutely right. You know, you and I were a little bit nervous doing this interview because there is a lot of scrutiny on Huawei and and making sure you're asking the right questions and making sure that you're bringing a lot of balance to the interview. And that's what we tried to do today. Um, we know that not everybody's going to be satisfied. I mean, some people really, really want to hit hard. I just don't think that a, a company spokesperson, you're going to get that much from people. You're going to get the company line, which is, I think, Adam did a great job at doing that. That, of course, is not the whole story. This is a multifaceted story. It's a very, very complex story. I really encourage you to, to really spend time looking at all the different angles on it. It's a, there's a different set of issues in Africa as there are here in China or in the United States, and each is different. And it's really just, it's so complex. So, you know, we'd like to hear from you. What did you think? Did you like what Adam have to say? Does it satisfy you? What about the difference in how Africans look at this and how Americans and Europeans look at that? The issue of Huawei and security and surveillance and whatnot. Tell us what you think. Share it on social media. You can email us directly, cobus at cobus at chinaafricaproject.com, or you can email me, Eric, E-R-I-C, at chinaafricaproject.com. We love getting your feedback. It's all of it is responded to and read. So uh, please do stay in touch and you can also follow us on all our various social media channels. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. For Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back again next week with another show. Thanks so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash chinaafrica project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.